Yes? Who is this? Mm, who are you trying to reach? What number is this? What number are you trying to reach? I don't know. Well, I think you have the wrong number. Do I? It happens. Take it easy. Hello? I'm sorry. I guess I dialed the wrong number. <laughs> so why'd you dial it again? To apologize. You're forgiven. Bye now. Wait, wait. Don't hang up. What? I want to talk to you for a second. They've got 900 numbers for that. See ya. Hello? Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. So, you got a boyfriend? <laughs> Why, you want to ask me out on a date? Maybe. Do you have a boyfriend? Um, no. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Hello, friends. We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today, we have a very special one. Wrapping up spooky season. uh, Celebrating its 25th anniversary in a couple of months. We are talking today about Wes Craven's 1996 uh, horror slasher reinvention, really. Scream. And to join us for that and to take us on this adventure, we have a wonderful, wonderful guest today. Culture writer Lindsay Lee Wallace is here. Lindsay, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you so, so much for asking me to join you. I'm so excited to be here to talk about Scream. (laughs) Well, we are very excited to have you. Uh, You, I think, first came onto our radar here in the Hit Factory uh, because of a couple of pieces that you wrote Uh, for our friends over at Blood Knife Magazine, which, listener, if you have not checked out, please do. Um, But your most recent one was uh, really great and just titled Why Women Watch Horror. And as a (laughs) non-woman, I'm curious, Lindsay, why? Why do women watch horror? What are some of the the findings of this piece? What are some of your your main takeaways? Uh, Well, um, in my experience, not not speaking for for all women, but for myself and the ones I talk to for, you know, the piece in generally, I think horror is a really great way to experience fear and then experience the relief that doesn't usually follow fear in real life. And that is really gratifying and cathartic for people. And I think in particular for 
women and people with marginalized identities who experience a lot of fear and unsettlement and general, which can come from all kinds of directions and often comes from society and doesn't have a resolution, being able to wrap that up and put a bow on it is just something that you can't get in a lot of other places. And horror does that really well. I totally agree. And I love how in the piece you take some of these pretty well-tread ideas around gendered participation in horror consumption and, you know, subvert them to a certain extent, but also sort of like pull, pull through them. And one of the things that you mention is this, that there is like something connective that happens when shared vulnerability is experienced between two people and like fear being a very real place of vulnerability um, but also relief being like a very real place of vulnerability. And that is an experience that um, that I've had where like when I watch something that is intensely emotional uh, in any direction with another person, I feel closer to that person, no matter what their gender or or age or anything like that. Um, so I really just I love that you kind of like you push through some of those older assertions from those studies um, and then also uh, build on it further. And it also had me thinking about not just the horror genre um, in cinema, but also kind of like other experiences where I feel closer to a person after I have had a shared experience of vulnerability. Um, So I just, it's a beautiful piece and I think everyone should read it. That's all I'm trying to say. Oh, incredible. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) We will absolutely be uh, linking to that piece so that uh, you, dear listener, can also read and enjoy it. I'm so glad that you brought up that specific part of that piece because I just realized a correction that I need to make that I I couldn't live with myself if I didn't is that I used trauma bonding incorrectly in that piece to describe what you are talking about. I didn't Mm -hmm. know the real meaning of trauma bonding, which is not what I used it as. Um, So... I I said that horror simulates trauma bonding between people when you watch something together like that and experience that catharsis together. And trauma bonding is actually the bonding between an abuser and their victim after a um, like episode of abuse. And I didn't realize that. I just meant when two people go through something painful together. So sorry to the whole world and everyone who knows about psychology. <laughs> we will definitely make sure that that is in there. We will keep okay. this part in just to make sure that uh, any wrongdoing you're accused of can hopefully be rectified and smoothed Thank out you. by this year. Thank Absolutely. you. I... <laughs> you know, so after we read this piece, Lindsay, uh, your name immediately went to like the top of our list of people to have Vaughn come, you know, this this October, this spooky season. Um, and when we reached out, we off- asked for, you know, maybe a short list of movies that you you thought you'd really enjoy doing. Um, one of which, unfortunately, was Event Horizon, which we did earlier this month with Maddie Lewis. It's a it's a really fun episode. Please do listen to it, even though Lindsay's not on it. It's incredible. Um, I listened to it today. It's great. Please listen to it. Oh, thank, thank you, you for that. Wow. You heard it here, endorsed. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the fact that I sound like a gherkin on that episode. Yes, well, that's that's my fault. That's a technical issue. Um, sometimes we record into a piece of citrus instead of into a computer. It happens. And it does that. Uh, by any means... One of the other films that that was at the top of your list was uh, this one, Scream. And we didn't talk much. We kept our powder pretty dry in terms of why Scream. But I, I am curious to know maybe at the top here, like, what is it about this film 
that you're so drawn to? Why is it one of your favorite horror films of the 90s? Um, I think that one of the biggest reasons is just like, as as you can tell from my uh, desire to wade through weird psychological studies from the 70s and 80s on horror and like <laughs> look into my own belly button about it for all of eternity. I like <laughs> things that like peel back the layers and consider why something is the way that it is, which I think Scream is like the the genre setting example of that for horror. And like the, I mean, you know, as we have discussed, I wasn't alive when it came out. So can I, can I confirm or deny that it revived the horror genre? I don't know. But for me, I think that it certainly is like as biting today as maybe it was when it initially came out. And I like things that are just a little bit like self-referential in that way. And I think that makes it more interesting, especially when it comes to horror. And then the other reason that I really like Scream is that when I am not looking into my own belly button about horror, I am doing it about grief. And I think that the other thing about Scream that is like not as acknowledged is that it's like a story about this teenage girl grieving her mother and what it is like a year after her mother has passed away in this like horrible, violent way. And the world has moved on largely, but there's a new horror now and like how that affects her grieving process and everyone else's behavior. Um, so yeah, that's why I chose Scream. <laughs> I am so glad that you did, Lindsay. And the grief piece, I'm I'm really pleased that you brought up. I think we should spend some time on that in, in the conversation because I, knowing that that was something that you want to talk to talk about when, when I went in to watch this movie again this past week, I had that in the back of my mind because admittedly it was not something that I had given a lot of attention to in the past. And I just saw all the different ways that in the film, Nev Campbell's character's grief is prescribed or constrained in some way. And, and, you know, just all these ideas of like what society's expectation of like how you grieve and when you grieve and all these things. And um, yeah, I'm just really glad you specifically brought that up and that Aaron had told me that was something you wanted to talk about because I came to the movie with that perspective and it it made it a richer experience for me, despite the fact that I've seen this movie many, many times. So to your point, still really sticks um, and hits all these years later. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, you you said you're not sure if it quite reinvented the horror genre or if it, you know, like revitalized in any way. Um, I think the evidence kind of speaks for itself in terms of the the film when we look back at it. I, you know, for those of us who were alive at the time, I do remember this being a cultural sensation. I remember it being uh, kind of on the lips of everybody of like a particular age um, who was seeing it. And even people who were like my age or just a little bit older, you know, whose parents were letting them watch it when it came <laughs> out on VHS and probably shouldn't have. But, you know, it, it became very quickly like kind of that like adolescent teenage kind of hangout movie you know it was something with a little bit more bite to it than uh you know a, a 16 candles or uh pretty in pink or something like that that you know we had on vhs because of our parents but also was uh even sharper than like empire records or clueless or any of those other films of the 90s that were coming out and yeah i mean it, it was just it was a big big hit and spawned i think like a total movement of this kind of postmodern horror film specifically in the slasher genre and specifically credited to the screenwriter i think of this film kevin yes. williamson who also wound up writing uh i know what you did last summer 
He's responsible for, I think, maybe my favorite of his scripts and one of my favorite horror movies of the 90s, which is The Faculty. Um, and one that I know Carly has a deep affinity for, despite uh, its quality, which is Teaching Mrs. Tingle. <laughs> I just, I, I really love that movie. <laughs> I, I also think that what's interesting about Scream is that it had, you know, in terms of a, like a purely cynical perspective, the marketability that it had to be mm-hmm. like a teen movie, which it very much was if you look at the cast and like who they put in the film. But also very much marketed as uh, a horror or horror adjacent film. Like it was one of those movies that even kids like myself who were not into horror, like I did kind of consider it a teen movie. Like I watched it with my friends. We rented the the thing at Blockbuster. Um, and so like that too, I think, you know, was sort of, taking the genre um into a new space because it's not that like horror hadn't been for young people it certainly had been and was but this felt like an amalgamation of movies that had been bubbling um the sort of like clueless and you know empire records and then like a blending of those kinds of films with um this new type of slasher ish mm-hmm. thing yeah and i mean credit where it's due too you know like this is helmed by the wes craven um you know one of his few that maybe doesn't have wes craven apostrophe s before it maybe it does now i don't know um but at the time you know was also sort of wes at a period of time after his heyday you know he had also been sort of one of the key players in inventing this genre that he was now sending up uh with the nightmare on elm street alongside you know john carpenter with halloween and whoever the hell directed the Friday the 13th movies, whose name escapes <laughs> me now. Um, but Toby Hooper, too, obviously, with with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But uh, that one is an even earlier iteration of the same kind of like slasher poise and genre. But I guess at the time, you know, Wes Craven was, I think, also a little bit fatigued by this particular genre, by this particular style of movie. I think he was starting to see ways in which uh, a lot of the sort of deeper thematic roots of the slasher genre coming out of like the excesses of the 60s and 70s into more of like the late 70s, early Reaganite era, and then now into like the opulence of, you know, peak end of history here in the 90s. Uh, I think he was starting to see things about it that he didn't like, you know, as, yeah. as he claims that there was a lot of this sort of like internalized misogyny, sort of this like emphasis on purity and temperance that had sort of taken over the genre. Um, which was always sort of there, but you know, it, it complicates it in a lot of ways too, which we can certainly get into when we talk about the history of the slasher. But uh, yeah, I mean, this thing just like this took off immediately. Apparently, Kevin Williamson, you know, was inspired by a couple of real life murders and and sort of serial killings uh, in the early '90s. He was working on selling Teaching Mrs. Tingle quality film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's not, but everyone should watch it. Um I and... I now have to watch it so I know that. <laughs> you have to. And I want your thoughts, Lindsay, because it's it's wacky. <laughs> <laughs> um by any means, you know, Kevin Williamson started out with this thing as sort of like just an 18-page short story that he had drafted, uh which eventually became the opening 12 minutes of this film with with Drew Barrymore in the house uh on the phone call with the killer. Um now iconic and oft parodied. <laughs> but uh, he eventually developed this into a full script at the time, ironically enough, named Scary Movie. Fun. 
Um, he drafted a couple of also like small treatments for multiple sequels to this and then gave it to his agent and started a bidding war in Hollywood, uh, which eventually found its way to the Weinsteins at Dimension. Uh, and yeah, there's some grimaces there, I know, but you know, they, they are who they are and were key players in the film industry for a long time. Um, and then eventually Wes Craven comes to this with, with some excitement around it. Um, but, but I think the energy and, and the excitement around this particular script is a big reason why we get the cast that we do as well, which is a knockout. Drew Barrymore, I think was the first one attached to it, even before Wes Craven came on board, uh, wanted to play Sidney Prescott eventually settled for Casey uh, because of her schedule. But we also have Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Matthew Lillard, Jamie Kennedy, uh, Skeet Ulrich here as well. Um, and Henry Winkler. And Henry Winkler is here. <laughs> Leah Schreiber like... for a minute. Uh, but between this and Kevin Williamson's other film, I know what you did last summer, pretty much the entire cast of Scooby-Doo. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Linda Blair has a cameo as well. Linda, which yes, is Linda Blair oh my gosh, that's cameo. Right. I almost forgot about it. And Craven has a cameo himself in yeah. Freddy's get up as a, as a night janitor at the school, which is also super fun. Um, but I mean, that's, you know, a lot of boring kind of just like early stuff about the, the inception of this film. Um, needless to say, it was it was bound to be a hit. There was a lot of energy around it, a lot of excitement and a lot of players involved from the get go that were going to lead this thing to become what it is now and what it was at the time. Um, but before we get too deep into stuff about the film proper, Lindsay, <laughs> do you think you're up to the task of offering a, a very brief synopsis of the film? I, I'm going to do my best. Uh, yes, I think I think I should be able to. <laughs> so, well, okay, so you mentioned Drew Barrymore and her obvious star power that helped, you know, get this thing going right at the beginning. So Drew Barrymore opens the film in her 15 minutes as a, you know, cool, popular high schooler who gets a weird phone call and she's home alone. And this strange voice is asking her questions about horror movies. And then boom, he's actually gutted her boyfriend out on her patio. So that's awful. Um, and then she runs outside to try to get away and her parents arrive home and she's calling out to them in this horrible punctured lung voice that breaks my heart every time I hear it. Yes. They do not see yes. her. She is killed. Um, which just like side note, wild, wild to hinge so much of your marketing on Drew Barrymore and have her only in the opening 15 minutes of the film. Honestly, yep. a send up of the genre right there. Anyway, so then Sydney, <laughs> um, who is the like, I guess, actual heroine are like, yeah, so she is grieving her mother's death, but that's not really what we think is going on. And her and her friends find out about this classmate of theirs, Casey, who has been murdered. Everyone is in a tizzy trying to figure out how this happened. And Sydney and her friends are, her friends are, her friends are weird. They're nice. Her boyfriend is, you know, he's nice. There's nothing wrong with him at all. Um, but her and her <laughs> boyfriend cool, have I, been, nothing at, all. <laughs> nothing at all. Her and her boyfriend have been having some like weird uh, issues around intimacy since her mom died, but it's fine. And then this classmate of theirs is murdered <laughs> and the um, town institutes a curfew because they are concerned about the murder and they decide that it's safe for all of the the people to be inside. And these teenagers decide that they're going to have a party because as we have learned in the past couple of years, when there's a curfew, people decide that they should all congregate somewhere and behave in ways that endanger people's lives. So um, <laughs> they all get together to have this party. Um, 
And Sydney has had a confrontation with Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox, who is the opportunistic journalist who covered Sydney's mother's murder and who questions uh, Sydney. Sydney was the key witness in pinning the murder on Cotton Weary, who was her mother's either her mother's lover or somebody who assaulted her mother, depending on who you believe in that scenario. But Gail Weathers wrote a book about this and sort of made her name as a, as a journalist who you have to believe used to be a meteorologist, but whatever, <laughs> um, <laughs> on, on covering this particular murder. Sydney doesn't like her because that's, you know, a shitty thing to do. So um, they have a confrontation. And then later on, Sydney is at this party and um, she receives... No, she's not at the party. She's at her house. She receives another one of these sketchy, mysterious phone calls. It's very frightening. And then her boyfriend comes in through her window, as he is wont to do, and he drops a cell phone, and she realizes that she thinks actually he could be the murderer because he has just made this phone call to her that is very mysterious and threatening, and she knows that Casey was getting phone calls, so maybe her boyfriend's a murderer. We don't know. Uh, <laughs> and so she goes to spend the night at her friend Tatum's house, who is... Rose McGowan, but in this film, she's just Tatum, and that's fine. And um, <laughs> she gets another weird phone call, and she's just clearly, this phone call thing is happening a lot. And what I learned today when I was doing research for this is that the phone calls were coming from a voice that is not the real killer, but somebody else who was hired to just do the voice, which I think is a good move on their part because it's very unsettling. Yes. So Billy gets released from prison, and Sydney is still suspicious of him, but nobody else seems to be. The police now think that Sydney's father has done the murder because they cannot find him and he is missing. So now Sydney is coming up on the anniversary of her mother's death and also her father is missing. But we don't care. We're going to go to a party. So they go to a party and her friends are, you know, they're just behaving like teenagers at a party who don't think anything bad can happen to them. Everyone in this movie has like an exorbitant amount of money. Their houses are enormous. It's great. We're having Lindsay, a great time. <laughs> I was screaming. They're huge. Like, <laughs> Everyone's house is so no, big. I, 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 as a child watching this movie, I don't remember thinking twice about it. Um, and uh, just as an older adult rewatching it and it having been several years since I've seen the movie, I was like, I was like pounding my fists. I was like, everyone <laughs> lives in a, what? They have the view. Like it's obscene. Yeah, it's no, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's also like some of these scenes where they're trying to like run away or whatever. It's just like doors on doors on rooms on hallways. And I was like, yes. this couldn't even happen like where I live. Like it would no. just be like two rooms and then I'm dead or I go out the window and that's it. Like yep. A thousand percent. A thousand <laughs> we don't have percent. options. <laughs> no options. We're in a loft. There are literally no doors except for the bathroom. So like <laughs> that's it. Well, okay, Anyways. if someone's trying to murder you, though, like, you can see, you know, like, yeah, I have options. I can go up high at the top level and be like, all right, I'm tracking your moves. One, one way in, one way out. That's perfect. That's the way we like it. Oh, man. Yes. So they're at this party and then more murders start happening to the thrilling conclusion, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I think a great place to start here is just with, as we've already mentioned, sort of the, the top notch cast here. Um, you've mentioned Drew Barrymore, obviously, and and the subversion of really having probably the the most bankable star in the movie in the film for less than fifteen minutes. Um, kind of a psycho move, right? <laughs> it's uh, yeah, but it is. It's definitely a subversion here, and they did they they really banked so much of this marketing around it. And I think that you know the studio probably saw it as like a as a sort of mitigated risk, right? That they knew that people would come for the draw of seeing this, and in the process 
be totally thrown off by the fact that uh, if Drew's gone, that means anybody is game. <laughs> exactly. I think, that, I think it really plays well for the film, you know, like not that at this point, Nev Campbell uh, isn't a big name, but uh, just offing Drew immediately sort of changes things for us here and, and sets a template for this as being something that is not going to be quite as predictable as slashers that we've seen before. Uh, for my money, I would say that I, th- I think Nev does a great job. I think Drew Barrymore is like unbelievable in those first like 12 minutes. She's sterling. You mentioned that sort of like uh, that, you know, <laughs> exhalation of a scream that she's trying to let out with a punctured lung. And every single time you're absolutely right. It just like it kills you. Like she's so close. She's so close to like salvation and then can't quite stick it and it's it's brutal to watch Um, it's the voice and it's the fact that like her parents are right there right 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 there it's so it's actually really sad yeah Yeah. I I was pretty affected by it on this rewatch I was like just like putting myself in that in that headspace of like I am certainly going to die and my parents are 30 feet away from me and all I want to do is just like be next to them and be safe. And it's just, it's, it's brutalizing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that like the, the watching of it as like a film about families being like torn asunder is so disturbing in addition to all of the other ways in which it is disturbing. But like the, obviously like with Sydney and her mother and then with Drew Barrymore dying 30 feet away from her parents going into their opulent mansion and then, even at the end where um, Matthew Lillard's character is like, my parents are going to be so mad at me about these murders yes, I did. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's just so like, what are these people's relationships with their families? What do the people who made this movie think about parenting? Yes, <laughs> completely. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, you know, for for my money, like the Dark Horse candidate for maybe one of my favorite performances in the entire thing is Matthew Lillard. Not Dark oh Horse. My God. White Horse no, all the way. Absolutely. He is fucking stellar in this He's movie. He's so yeah. good. He's so unsettling and also just so like that guy who is like your boyfriend's friend that you don't want to hang out with I don't know I've never had a boyfriend but that's generally the way I feel about men so that's just like yeah yep yeah a thousand percent and he's also like one of those cool guys that's like he's popular and like you know popular adjacent but is also just like a complete goon Mm -hmm. and that's also kind of what's like part of his charm yes and he's he seems like harmless in that regard even though the actual things he says are like so offensive and disturbing like in the wake of casey's murder the comments that he's making and everyone is sort of like ew gross anyway you're having a party but like he's like able to get away with a lot more (laughs) i think because he has that kind of like oh i'm just like your wacky you know like sidekick friend yeah yeah as as both someone who has had a friend like this while having a girlfriend and also been this friend to a friend with a girlfriend. I can assure you that, yes, he gets it very, very right. right um, and does a lot of, lot of unsettling, but also really masterful work with it. I, I learned yes. while, while looking up some things about this film that I guess he was almost kind of hired by accident. So he happened to be at the building at which they were holding auditions for the film 
because he was waiting for his girlfriend who was auditioning for a role in something else, the casting director saw him outside, asked if he'd be willing to read, having kind of liking his aesthetic and apparently just nailed it. Like, so <laughs> the rest is history. That makes me feel did. like I have to think so much about my aesthetic everywhere I go now in case my <laughs> opportunity is just that I'm standing outside a building where something important is happening. Yeah. And you wonder it's how much of that of is like, you wonder how much of that might be apocryphal, right? Like just like a yeah. selling point of the movie. Like maybe he actually was there and, you know, just really wowed them uh, because yeah. he was reading for Stewart. But, you know, but he's got a certain amount of electricity that is undeniable. I mean, certainly like he's he's just so strange looking and he's and yet he's also just like intensely charismatic. I I just really adore Matthew Lillard. Yeah. Oh, same. Absolutely. And I also think that like, I mean, and I and I shouldn't let, you know, all all queer people off the hook for this because you can be that weird friend no matter your gender. And certainly that's still <laughs> the case with like my partner's weird friends, all of whom I love in case they're listening to this. Um, but <laughs> I think that it's just like, it's so, I mean, in terms of like horror tropes, he's so innocuous because he's just not, that's not usually who it is. Like in terms of like, it's often the boyfriend, but it's not ever the boyfriend's friend. And then of course it mm -hmm. can be the boyfriend and his friend. And that's just like right. out of control anyway. Yes, totally. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about their relationship in a little bit too, because there's fantastic. Maybe, okay. maybe more there than, than the, the film uh, tells us explicitly. <laughs> Um, there's a there's a couple of knowing glances, uh, <laughs> but uh, also in the cast is the great Henry Winkler, who shows up as the, <laughs> as the principal, which we we mentioned already. Apparently, refused uh, billing on this as not to overshadow the young up and coming cast. Magnanimous, that yeah. man. Such a vibe. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful Thank you, man. Henry Winkler. Yeah. Thank you, Henry. I I never want to hear or learn anything awful about. Henry Winkler because I just adore him. I think he's great. And he's really fun in this one too. They give you a brief kind of tease for a moment that maybe he's the killer. He has that kind of line uh, where he says something like what, what you, your entire whoring thieving generation, mm -hmm. you know, he, he, uh, he doesn't seem to have much value for, uh, the culture of the youths of 1996. Yeah. You know, I wrote this line down because I was kind of amazed by it. He says, uh, yes, your entire thieving, whoring generation disgusts me. And then he calls them heartless, desensitized little shits. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is interesting because the, you know, Yes, maybe these are some like throwaway lines from, uh, you know, that you would potentially expect to hear coming out of a principal's mouth. But I also think there is like, there's a lot that's contained in the few sentences he he launches at these kids that I found to be reflective of adults' perception of children in the 90s. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a young child in the 90s um, when this came out. And I definitely remember there being like conversations in the media and also just like in school about kids sort of lack of morality and always this comparison that is still done today, right? Of like when I was your age. But in the 90s in particular, there, there was this thread of like, you're corrupted. Like, young children are corrupted and my parents I don't think ever like I never got that vibe from them but I definitely remember like from authority figures particularly in school or like at my dance classes or whatever there was always kind of this this air of like 
yeah, you guys are just like vile and like senseless <laughs> yeah. and you need to be reined in and like video games are ruining you. And, you know, it's all it's all pretty well tread stuff. But I do think his my point in bringing this up is that I think his his soliloquy is reflective of a perspective on youth that society at large had in this sort of neoliberal moment. Yeah. He also undercuts that that sentiment earlier in the film, though. I His PA announcements are so funny to me. He comes on like <laughs> mid-sentence. Yeah, he's like, anyways. He's like, children, I love you. I want you to be safe. Go home directly <laughs> after school. Like, you know, his, it's just like very like overly familiar and, and very like paternal. But it's uh, anyway, he does a really great job in this um, for the little bit that he's given. And yeah, I think that there's there's something revealing about those lines and what you're talking about, I think lends itself to some of the things that the film is addressing and critiquing, which is, uh, you know, the, the ways in which media informs culture, the way media influences the youth. Um, and obviously like kind of being here at this sort of like apex of neoliberal order, you have like programs like dare right you have like the remnants of like the satanic panic still like very much alive you know and now like you know instead of uh slayer and and uh megadeth it's like you know guar or like marilyn manson or something the marilyn manson thing was very real particularly adjacent to columbine totally but you know all all of these sort of like inklings of some sort of like uh, supernatural evil or like a corrupting force in our society, like all of those things are there. Um, and of course, you know, one of the things that was certainly uh, accused of this was horror films, violent movies. Um, so having somebody like a Wes Craven, who is, you know, one of the masters of the genre and really invented a lot of these slasher movie tropes with Nightmare on Elm Street, um, helming this project, like certainly while, while it's maybe not the most significant theme in the movie like i i feel like it's absolutely present yeah i wonder I mean, though oh go ahead Lindsay. i was actually going to ask you a question so please oh uh, i was just going to say i mean even at the end when they're um discussing you know how they decided that they were going to become these murderers it's they just behave like they were like empty vessels that were filled with this expectation and had yep. no choice but to behave this way and you know whether or not i believe that because obviously there's the hint of the motivation of like the affair that uh, Sydney's mm-hmm. mom was having with Billy's father, but it's just like they they just seem like they're so lost and they had no. This was like comforting almost to find something to be doing. Yeah, I was. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you what your read on that as an explanation was because I too was kind of like. I don't know. Like this feels a little hobbled together. I feel like, I mean, I think that it's the, I think that how unsatisfying it is, is I guess like the commentary on that idea societally, like when you hear it and you're watching the film, it's obviously not a good enough reason to behave that way. So how can you really think that the like morally bankrupt children of the nineties are actually going to turn into murderers from watching horror movies? Like you don't, because you don't believe it in this movie. Like, Mm yeah, it's ridiculous. Totally. And so I guess my question to you then is, do you feel like that's intentional on Craven's part? Oh, definitely. Yes, I do. (laughs) Because I think that everything, 
I feel like everything about it was very intentional in a way that is incredibly satisfying. Um, mm. But absolutely, that's like, okay, this is your explanation. This is what you have been telling me, the genre that I contribute to and have like arguably helped architect. This is what you're telling me it does. So I'm mm. presenting you with this scenario. Do you believe it? Do you really think so? No, you don't. Because it's fucking stupid that that would be the explanation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It- it feels completely unsatisfying. They like dismiss it almost point. outright. You know, Matthew Lillard as Stu kind of says, yeah, you know, you just watch a couple movies, you take a few notes, you learn <laughs> yeah. how to kill somebody, right? <laughs> and you're so right. Like it, it is completely unsatisfying because it doesn't make any sense. Um, and the, yeah, the ways in which both of the killers try to sort of like psychologize and, and understand <laughs> themselves and, and come up with something is, yes. is a really rewarding part of the end of this movie because it... it uh, it complicates the narrative. It complicates like the the usually pretty cut and paste, very simplistic sort of narrative of X reason, Y result, and yeah. just makes it way, way more fun. It's also really satisfying to watch. Like, I mean, I know that I generationally, it's unclear where I land, I guess, based on my birth year. But um, I feel like right now it is a big thing to like psychoanalyze yourself and try and determine mm-hmm. the exact cause for your behavior via like wrote psychiatric, not psychiatric necessarily, but like wrote psychological phenomena rather than looking at your feelings or why you did all these murders. Is it because you're mad at your mom? But no, it's because of society and these specific situations. And I just think that that's like very relatable still today. And one of the reasons that the movie is still so relevant. (laughs) Yes, completely. And that there's this sort of like, there's this like mania that exists when you are a young person, Mm -hmm. right. That drives you in ways that you may not be, you know, fully able to understand and that all you are trying to do is understand where it's coming from and understand and channel that energy into a place that feels right in some way. Yeah. I'm, I'm, fearful that the 2022 update of scream is going to have like the motive of the killer be i'm literally neurodivergent and a minor or (laughs) some like meme like that fully (laughs) but i I hope that it it winds up you know uh exceeding my expectations of it because i do really like a lot of the the sequels in this particular franchise as well which is which is impressive for for sequels to a horror franchise yeah in fact, I would actually say that maybe Scream 2 is my favorite out of all of them. Oh, wow. Um, well, You would I, not be alone. A lot of people say that. Yeah, I w- yeah. I that's would a have popular... s- I would have said that before this rewatch. And now I think mm-hmm. that this movie is operating on a lot of levels that I don't think I initially gave it credit yes. for watching it in my, my teens and, and I early think our 20s. conversation with Lindsay is reaffirming for me that this <laughs> is the best one in the series. I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah, a thousand percent. I came into it, you know, this morning. It was like I'm going to take a couple notes and see what I can like extract out of this for a conversation. And then, like six pages later, I'm like, oh, we're not going to get to all of this, but we'll do our best. <laughs> I made like four different friends watch it with me again in the run up to yes. having this conversation to be like, but like, did you notice this part? And like every time was like a different <laughs> facet of note. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Amazing. So good. You came prepared. You did the research. Yes. We appreciate it. Thank you. Could I summarize the movie? No. Did I watch it eight times? Yes. <laughs> At some point, it becomes like that. What's the word for it? Uh, that semantic saturation or whatever it is where you say the word oh, yeah. over and over oh. in your head and it just becomes gobbledygook? Yes. That's what you did with Scream. It just now is just like moving images without any sort of coherent plot to it. Oh, Absolutely. No. And yeah. that psychological phenomenon is my motive for all the murders I'm going to do after we're done with this. <laughs> 
this is going to have to be submitted to the cops. I empathize. I don't know what to say. (laughs) I can relate. Uh, But while we're on the subject of this sort of like meta commentary about media, not just in the sense of horror movies or violent imagery informing culture and youth and, and their acts of violence, but also the inverse relationship that media has in its infatuation with violent acts. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers and also mm-hmm. like the the inspiration for this movie being uh, the Gainesville Ripper, right? Uh, in, in, I guess, the mid-1990s, there was a young man who went on a killing spree, killed several college students at the University of Florida and uh, dismembered them. It was really gory and brutal. And this became something of a fascination for Kevin Williamson when he wrote the script. Mm-hmm. Of course, he managed to, I think, have enough uh, enough capacity for self-reflection to understand the ways in which the news cycle around the Gainesville Ripper was also creating the sort of tension and anxiety he was feeling. And I think that that's represented here in the film really well as well. Sort of the sensationalized aspect of it, the way that it's commercialized, the way that Gail Weathers, uh, you know, is is always has a profit motive. And because of that, doesn't also really have any vested interest in like ending the murders, but simply just like following them to their conclusion, right? There's no like real hope of solving it. It's just like, let's see how much we can extract from this from this happening. And even when she's directly involved and even when her actual life is threatened, she's still looking at it with this perspective of like, what the story of this is? Like, what is the narrative of my participation in almost getting killed? <laughs> right. right. A special eyewitness <laughs> testimony from one Gail Weathers, you know? Yes. (laughs) Um, But I, you know, I think that this is a thing that we've been talking a lot about. I think there's been a a conversation around this friend of the show, um, Emma Burquist wrote a really good Gawker piece recently about the infatuation with true crime, you know, sort of like a modern, uh, like a modern day evolution of this same kind of infatuation of sensationalizing murder and and Mm -hmm. violence and things like that. And understanding it sort of as a inherently conservative and right wing framing of of like culture and and society, you know, the ways that we sort of instill fear, you know, the, the slasher genre, I think, was kind of born of some of this anxiety, right? Like, you know, maybe uh, it, it's it's hard to say for sure how much of this is intended, but with Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sort of like one of the the original texts of the slasher genre, there was a lot of anxiety and fear about like white working class people you know um in halloween it was like the fear of uh of like the safety of suburbia being upended by crime you know and and violence and these vestiges sort of find their way all the way up to even scream that while it is able to sort of make a relatively smart commentary about that sensationalization still plays into those anxieties and fears in a lot of really profound ways Right. Especially like depending on who you're watching it as like you can just pick up the top layer and get the story that you are looking for, which is just like, look at the danger facing all of these innocent white people in their giant houses and like these poor teenagers, except for the ones who have had sex, they deserve to die. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I also think that I don't know if this is too much of like a tangent, but just in terms of like horror reflecting cultural anxieties, I like one of the other reasons I love it so much is just like, I don't think that there's another genre that like so quickly picks up on and reflects whatever is like the predominant thing that society is afraid of at the time. And like often, you know, in that process, creating stories that are like truly 
horrific and offensive because the thing that humanity, quote unquote, which actually ends up meaning like the white wealthy people involved in making this yes. are afraid of is like disability or like mm-hmm. black and brown people or queer people. And so the the products are often truly offensive and terrible, but the end result is sort of a, a mirror to society that other genres don't produce as quickly or as effectively, I don't think. Yes. Yeah. I completely agree. Horror manages to sort of betray the anxieties of the moment better than than any other genre, any other storytelling medium, I think. Well, and if I'm thinking about back to your your piece in Blood Knife on why women watch horror, you also make the brilliant point that there is an element of when women watch horror, there is a sort of catharsis that happens and there is like this freedom to experience things and experience feelings and do things that like they may not have the agency to do um in the normal scriptures of society um and I feel like that's also where this sort of like immediacy of reflection can become like really really intoxicating right when you're like oh I'm I'm seeing the things that you know I'm feeling reflected back to me and I also have an outlet to to respond to them differently here in this space in this theater um yeah I might elsewhere I think that that's that's I mean, you called it my brilliant point, but it sounds especially brilliant the way that you put it. Um, oh, good. Great. <laughs> women uplifting women. That's go. what we're here for. <laughs> it's it's like a more psychologically accurate term than trauma bonding. <laughs> <laughs> you, I, I really appreciate, though, you also saying like, oh, by the way, this is a thing I want to correct because I feel like uh, I am one of those people that like carries my mistakes with me like for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. no matter what medium they happen in or like who's around. So, yeah. oh, yeah. Well, if there's a segment of the podcast, I can just go through every mistake I've ever made and we can correct them <laughs> on the air and that would be great for me. But that, like, we'll think about it. Me doing that, okay, like, cool, at some cool, point cool. is like at once my nightmare and like my dream to just, I like, like, yeah. I wrote a short story about that in like my freshman year of high school and my teacher was like, hey, um, what's up? You Are you good? And I was like, no. And she was like, okay. Obviously not. Oh my no. Gosh. Like, why would you ask me that? <laughs> Very perceptive of you, Mrs. Green, to, to ask that question. Um, I, I can't relate to any of this. I've never been wrong. I've never used a word incorrectly on the show. I've that's never true. made a point that's been proven false can later on. Can confirm. And that's why yeah. you can't you can't enjoy horror because you don't need the catharsis. You just that's you're right. experiencing life at peak performance already. And that's honestly, right. I feel bad for you. <laughs> you know, I do what I can. I suffer through these episodes where we talk about horror movies, <laughs> yes. and I really use it as just like a you know a, a venue by which to work out issues for our, our guests and for Carly, you yes, know, like, thank I, you. I, yes, this is, this is very charitable of me to More do More philanthropy from, from the male <laughs> sect of the, the pod. Uh, but continuing on this about the slasher genre, you know, I, I've always had a really complicated relationship with it. Cause I, I do love slasher movies. There was a period of my life when I was probably like 11 or 12, where I, I watched every entry in the Friday the 13th series. I watched all the Halloweens. I watched all the the nightmares, like everything, you know, I even Jason X, unfortunately, um, but a David Cronenberg <laughs> cameo in that one. So, you know, it's not all bad. Um, but as a genre, you know, there, there is something about it that feels inherently sort of misogynistic. It feels very sort of conservative in its values. Obviously we already mentioned there is sort of like an inherent temperance or sort of like morality design around it. You know, 
Uh, and they talk about it in Scream as well, the rules that you can't sin, right? Like anyone who has sex, anyone who who drinks, who does drugs, anybody who strays from the pack, anybody who is a, a person of, uh, you know, who isn't like pretty and white and cis is probably going to be offed early on. You know, all of these things come up in these movies. Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Uh, have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Big no no! Big no no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever, under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Cause you won't be back. I'm getting another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. But there is also something about it that I think in its initial iteration was also somewhat subversive in terms of its like gender politics and in its relationships. I think maybe this isn't true, uh, but but I have to make the assumption that there were a lot of men watching these slasher movies, you know, in, in their earliest iterations. And things like Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, things like Halloween required them to sort of confront and reconfigure their gender biases and their relationships in order to align themselves and sympathize with a female heroine, with the final girl, rather than looking to the male characters for strength and what they would assume would be the the qualities that would allow someone to survive. So much of the time, the like predominant perspective is like the the straight white cis male perspective. So that's not like a group of people who as frequently have to learn how to enjoy something from somebody else's perspective and like experience that kind of empathy. Whereas like everyone else in society is used to fitting themselves into that perspective to still enjoy and participate in the narrative. So that is like a really interesting thing about horror, which being like the genre second after romance where women have the most lines is like, if you're going to watch it and you're going to enjoy it, you will at some points have to empathize with a woman as the main character of what you're mm. watching. And like, that doesn't always mean that what's going on with her is going to be terribly progressive or meaningful, but um, certainly it will happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all of that is to say that with scream you know we get a slightly more progressive model of that final girl iteration i mean she does survive having had sex and that's incredibly that's yes. that's really something <laughs> yes totally there are a lot of ways in which sydney still i think occupies a very traditional final girl kind of format you know they don't feminize her nearly as much as they do rose mcgowan aka tatum right she's not um that same kind of like girly girl they give her a slightly more kind of uh, I don't want to call masculine uh, sort of like wardrobe, but but definitely something that isn't like strictly or inherently feminine. They put her in a lot of sneakers and a lot of big shirts, things like that. Um, and they make her a little bit more just kind of like, yeah, I don't know, just kind of like temperate, I guess, you know, just like a little bit more of, of the brainy person with a little bit more of the aversion to sex. Like they give her a yeah. lot of these qualities. Um, but you are right. Like in the end, she does sort of break one of the the codified laws of the slasher genre and has sex and still manages to survive. And yes, I do want to talk about the sex scene because it's what could be a, a like sort of throwaway scene in the film, I think is actually one of the smartest interactions in the entire thing. 
I want to ask your opinion on this, Lindsay. I, I think I've always viewed this scene between Nev and uh, Skeet, as I will call them, because um, I can't. What's his name in the movie? Billy. Billy. Billy Loomis. Yeah, so innocuous. Which is also the last name of Donald Pleasance's oh. character in Halloween. Right. He's Doctor Loomis. So perfect. Also, I like that you could keep skeet in your mind but not billy that's like more <laughs> i mean skeet your name yeah is i mean your name is literally yeah skeet. it leaves a mark um <laughs> so there's you know the tension with them throughout the film of her grief sort of being the thing that um is uh closing her off from him in in a lot of ways one of which is sexually and um and finally towards the end of the film she has you know these lines she's saying to him on a bed where she's like i know that i need to move on and i want to do that and you know she's sort of um processing all of the things that have happened to her and and saying like um like let's go basically and so then they have sex and immediately afterward she starts questioning him about the first phone call that he made at the police station when he was arrested and I read this scene this time around with like I think a a level of I don't know I was more attuned to things that I I think I previously missed um in other watches I'd always kind of read this scene as like there's something else going on but what I really noticed this time around was I got the sense that she maybe was going into the encounter with the intention of using it as a tool for manipulation. And that was something that I had never like spent a ton of time pondering before in previous watches. And I would just love to know your perspective on that because it is a very, a very interesting sort of like kind of subversion but also it's like playing with the idea of her sort of reclaiming some sexual agency as a tool for her own survival what are your thoughts that's so interesting i i have never thought about it that way and i think that that's such a like especially in terms of like reclaiming the agency as a tool for her own survival because i it feels like so abrupt and like in a tongue in cheek way, I was like, yes, she survived having sex and that's incredible. But like, it's not as though at no point do I believe that she genuinely wants to be doing this, like that she feels, you know, like I, I'm really in the mood. I, it feels very like either this is a way of forcing myself to get past my grief and like be present because I feel like I have to, or like you're saying that like, this is an opportunity for me. And this is the only like tool that I have at my disposal to solve what's going on around me and like protect myself. Um, but either way, it feels so like if you want to think about the the trope of, you know, not being able to survive having sex as a woman in a horror movie, if, you know, she isn't actually doing it because of her like carnal feminine, whatever the fuck, and she's doing it either out of like a, a misplaced sense of obligation or as a tool, then perhaps that's why she can survive because she mm. isn't having sex in a way that means she deserves to die. She isn't sinning. She's either being resourceful oh. or like being tortured by society. Yes. So I hadn't thought about that. See, yeah. that's why I wanted to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I there, think, there... I think there is something there. It, it does feel a little, it, it, felt more architected to me um, on this watch than I think I had noticed before. And I love the idea 
that you're bringing up of that this way of her having sex is what is sort of the key to her survival, that it could be read that way. That's a brilliant point. And that's in line with everything about her, like not necessarily boyish portrayal at all, but just like mm-hmm. not as as a counterpoint to to Tatum, like not as feminine yes. and not as like that, you know, she is the like more tomboyish counterpart to her more feminine friend. Yes, completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of complexity in that scene. Like I said, you know, it it masks itself as like a pretty kind of like throwaway sex scene in a teen movie kind of situation. <laughs> but when you realize that there is, you know, this this possibility of Nev going into that engagement with all of these different things and all these different motivations and also realizing that Billy is doing the same with uh, the intention of using it as a testing ground to see if she'll... Uh, remain chaste to see if she'll stay virginal and thus like Mm -hmm. afford to live or whether or not she will sort of like uh, she'll get the answer wrong as as Stu Mm -hmm. says and kind Mm -hmm. of the 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 finale here there's a lot going on and you know on on multiple rewatches I think that it only benefits that scene because you just see all of the different threads being pulled in what right could in other movies just be like oh yeah we have to have the sexy people do sexy things together because that's what movies do well and also and the scene is not sexy no it's not like <laughs> it there's like brown big furniture <laughs> everywhere and like she's kind of like you know a little bit stressed out about it they show yeah. maybe like i don't know 10 15 seconds of them like on top of each other and that's really it and it's cut with Randy, right? I, this is, I think mm-hmm. this is true. It's cut with Randy explaining all of the rules for a horror movie, including that if you have sex, you die. So it's yep. like, it doesn't feel, it feels like a gotcha. It doesn't feel like, a, oh, we're taking advantage of our like attractive young cast. Yes. Totally. A thousand yeah. percent. I, with the exception of like the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes of the movie, I think that the stuff with Jamie Kennedy explaining the rules is maybe one of my other favorite moments, like one of the most memorable parts of the, the movie. Um, yeah. And just the way they all sort of like flippantly skirt the rules while they're kind of like goading him as he's telling people, you know, you can't, you can't have sex. You can't drink. You can't smoke. When Matthew Lillard, you know, deliberately says, I'll be right back after he oh says not God. to say that. And then he does the arm thing and he's like, he's just, he's just incredible. Oh, Matthew yeah. Lillard. Anyway. He's so <laughs> incredible in this movie. I wanted so much more of him. He, he doesn't have enough yes. screen time. In, we agreed. We missed it uh, until this last watch, but in the scene immediately following this, Gail leaves the van with Dewey and tells, mm-hmm. uh, tells her cameraman, Kenny, I'll be right back. Yes, but she will be and he will not. That's correct. <laughs> he will for sure not be. <laughs> I actually really want to talk about the the points um, that we sort of teased in the beginning around grief. I would love for you to talk more about, about that um, with this particular film. Um, so I don't know if this is, well, okay, I'm just going to say this and then hope that it's not like inappropriate or anything, but... Um, Tomorrow is actually going to be the, it's going to be two years since my mom passed away. And one of the reasons that I uh, wanted to talk about this movie and do it this month, although obviously the original date we discussed wasn't like this close to that, but like generally as that's something on my mind, I think 
the anniversary effect of coming up on a traumatic date and the date around the loss of a loved one is really significant. And it is so weird to watch Scream and know that it is coming up on the anniversary of Sydney's mom's death and understand that that is not on like anyone else's radar except for like Gail Weathers as a person existing in a media media ecosystem obsessed with anniversaries and like maybe a little bit Tatum. And it's just her like questioning of herself and in terms of like the sex scene, whether it's like a deliberate tool or it's like an attempt to sort of snap herself into the reality she feels like she should be living in. Mm -hmm. When you think about like the conversation that she has with Tatum at the grocery store where she's sort of like, I understand why Billy wouldn't want to be with me anymore. Like she is so aware that her behavior is not in line with what is appropriate for somebody who is grieving, which is like, obviously not actually true. Grief is messy and bullshit and terrible forever, no matter what. But in addition to the tropes about horror that this movie is like eviscerating, I do also think that it kind of eviscerates some tropes about grief in a way because Sydney is a lot of her like more boyish presentation or whatever could arguably also be perceived as she's just like more withdrawn and she's not as outgoing. And that is either her character or it's a response to grief. But either way, it's not something that those around her perceive or care about a lot but it's like a fundamental part of her character that then when she does start behaving in a way where she's like kicking ass and taking names like a final girl she has like had this experience where she tried to force herself to have sex with her boyfriend and behave appropriately and it didn't work out for her because her boyfriend's a murderer and the sex was bad and so now she's just like I am I'm really upset my dad is in this closet and I can be visibly upset about that because it just happened but also like I'm upset about my mom being dead. I'm upset that you fucking killed my mom. Like, And she yes. finally gets to demonstrate that. And it's when like all hell breaks loose. And it's, I imagine, very cathartic for her. I, mm-hmm. um, I hadn't thought about the elements of her kind of like aesthetics or maybe like some of her other qualities that seem sort of, they're potentially pre- presented to us as, fundamental to her in some way um or existing a priori uh that they could be like results of grief um and I think that that's the more I think about it I I actually feel like that's probably that's probably more accurate and I think you know Nev Campbell as an actress is sometimes like a little bit grating for me. She's like really breathy and like in her throat and like there's a lot of like huffing and and puffing. Um but what I do think Nev Campbell's really good at doing is portraying a person who is emotionally sort of taxed, right? Like she has this she's really really adept at communicating that there is um that she's strained in some way and i i think that's what makes the character of sydney really compelling um beyond just sort of like her being a pretty face and it's an interesting story um she does bring a certain amount of like emotional heft to the role um that i really feel like gives the grief a little bit more texture like enough that we're able to talk about it in the way that yeah. we are with this film I definitely feel like that's true. I think that the way that, um, like in the very first scene when she has had the, or not the first scene, sorry, but the scene where um, Dewey and the other 
cop come to the school to talk to her and she's familiar with them and you know that she's familiar mm-hmm. with them because of her mom, but you, it's not like immediately explained and made very explicit. It's sort of like more subtle than that. And I think that that's like, her grief is like the backbeat of the entire movie and the references to it are also like sort of a subtle through line until kind of the end. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one thing that I admired upon reflection this this last time that I don't think I've ever noticed before, but the way in which it feels more kind of authentic to the way in which you were reminded of and remember your loss and your grief. Yeah. There's never any flashbacks in this movie. <laughs> we never get that like moment where we see like, uh, you know, Nev and her mom like enjoying breakfast together and her telling her something that she'll recall later to help her survive. You know, we never mm-hmm. get that moment. All we get is these like sort of trace elements of her and her existence. The fact that these relationships and bonds were forged in the wake of tragedy, you know, the the photos on on the mantle, the yeah. the stuff on the news, you know, like the 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 kind of subtle references to it and the way people sort of dance around talking about it. And all of that stuff to me just feels so much more genuine to the way that that grief and loss are handled, you know, and, and the ways in which Absolutely. those memories are recalled than, than that, you know, thing that cinema has the capacity of doing, which is giving us an explicit visual memory and, and flashback of somebody that we just can't ever have in real life. And I think it's also like, I mean, obviously... Sydney's getting these phone calls and these phone calls are extremely disturbing and threatening. And, you know, initially she tries to be kind of tough about it, but it's like terrifying. And she's getting them throughout the movie, even at points where she's also having normal interactions with everyone else, which to me feels very reminiscent of just like, I'm living my life. It's like, I'm at a point in time where I'm not like going to have a breakdown, but sometimes I'm just going to feel like I've gotten a phone call from a scary murderer and Mm. have that emotional reaction and then go back to class or the party or whatever. And is that going to culminate in somebody coming to try to kill me? No, but certainly the emotional experience leading up to it is like, I feel like that's also a really accurate portrayal of grief more so than like, here is the flashback to the meaningful Mm. moment or whatever. Um, And I also think that the way that Sydney struggles with her mother's legacy because of the question of, you know, was she having an affair with Cotton Weary or was Mm -hmm. she assaulted by Cotton Weary? And what does that mean about whether or not she deserved to die and whether Sydney deserves to grieve her is so like by the end of the movie, she has reached the conclusion that obviously it does not matter. And she is like, but the, the way that she doubts herself about how upset she deserves to be, I feel like is also tied to her doubts about like who her mother really was. Like, is she a woman who would have had an affair? And does that mean that she actually deserves to feel as bad as she does? And the responsibility that you imagine she must have felt like testifying at this mm-hmm. trial to help put Cotton Weary behind bars. It's like, this is all I can do now to be a good daughter or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that those those judgments are self-imposed, yes, but they're socialized into her, right? Right. And we, you can tell by the way Gail Weathers talks to her about it. Yes. That it's, yeah. <laughs> completely. That, that, that these, um, this sort of like hierarchy of human value is a thing that we're confronted with on a daily basis. You know, we're told who is more deserving <laughs> of of living than right. than not um this calculus is always being made and the fact that she, it is so entrenched that she makes it herself um and even when she's having that conversation 
with Tatum on what I think is Tatum's like plantation balcony. I I can't remember. <laughs> Honestly, um, she, yeah. <laughs> she yeah. for sure had like a weird uh, spooky plantation house. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But they're having the conversation and and Tatum's like, well, I mean, like there were rumors flying around and she's sort of like catty about it. And you see Nev not only processing like that, but that it's coming from her friend, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm really, really glad that you wanted to talk about this specifically because I think um, it's a thing that I didn't explore a lot when I was a kid, um, but it's something that makes this movie so special and so distinct from a lot of other contemporary films to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like now that we're kind of talking about this and, and reasoning this out, like, especially in regards to, to Tatum, in this particular film, the subversion of the rules of the slasher genre are not so much that the the characters do those things, but that they do those things and hold that self-perception and valuation of themselves for doing it, right? Or, or other people for doing those things. Mm-hmm. With Tatum, especially, like you said, you know, she kind of qualifies her understanding of of Sydney's mom with that idea, right? Like, was she someone worth mourning or did she like misbehave? And I, I think, you know, Sydney and and maybe even characters like Randy and and Gail in some capacity, Dewey, whoever, their willingness to absolve themselves of those sort of societal pressures to evaluate people on the judgment of that sort of like very classic order of things uh, permits them the chance to survive. Definitely. I, yeah, I feel like anyone who is able to step outside of the framework, which is like the framework of a horror movie and also the framework in general is, has a better chance. Um, Mm -hmm. On that note, actually, there was one other thing I wanted to bring up that your piece sparked for me as I was reading it sort of like in conjunction with viewing this film, you point out in a lot of uh, the older research that was done around kind of like gendered consumption of horror that there is, um, I think it's called, I'm going to get this wrong, potentially, the snuggle theory. Oh, God, yeah, the snuggle theory. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, where there is this idea that, like, you know, women uh, women watch horror um, so that uh, they can perform a certain, like, kind of proper femininity. And so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about you know, whether or not that's true, I think your piece does a lot to say, like, that's not really the story here. Um, it's an interesting idea and one that certainly is believed, I think, by a lot of people. And and I think in a lot of ways that I think in a lot of ways the genre sometimes reinforces or like expects from its viewers. Um, and so I was thinking more about this idea of like, women in spectating violence or women in spectating period are performing. It's a creative act, right? It's a generative act. And that Sydney, stay with me here, guys. Um, <laughs> no, that, this is incredible. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I knew you'd meet me here, Lindsay. That Sydney is, um, in her own way, there is this sort of text within the text of her, she is a spectator to this violence. This violence is very specifically there to terrorize her, right? Um, and and in spectating, she is also performing. She is performing this role of the terrorized girl. 
she is performing her role as the protagonist, the female lead of this story that these that these fellows are creating. And and it was something that I hadn't thought about until I read your piece. And then I was like, no, like Sydney is is doing this. Sydney is this trope. She is like the spectator of the violence and also the person who like has to perform her feminine role like for the movie to progress and for things to, you know, be sort of like checked off in all of their boxes. Again, I think we talk about the ways in which she, her character and her character's sort of placement in the story subverts a lot of these tropes. But I think that's one, that's one element of her character that I found illuminated to me because of your piece. I I definitely feel like, yeah, because she is, whether she's conscious of horror in the way that Randy is, she's like conscious of her situation and society's expectations of her behavior in a way that is like, she is making choices to push the action forward, like both in like a meta way and in the moments where she is like, I am going to have sex with my boyfriend and that is going to mean these things for me. And that is like, yeah, she's participating very actively in everything that's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On that note, I don't know that Sydney is the only person who wants to have sex with Billy in the last part of this movie. It's a pet uh, theory of yours, <laughs> I think. And a masterful transition also. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Um, I, cause I, while we're on the subject of the conclusion here, you know, I, I do love this conclusion, like the, the bloodiness of it, the kind of just like the cluster fuckness of it, the cluster fuckery, I guess. It's juicy. It's, it's juicy. It's, a lot it's of, really good. A lot of juice. But of course, at the end here, it is revealed to us that both Billy and his best friend, Stu, played by Skeet and Matthew Lillard are both, uh, part of this conspiracy to murder their friends and uh, to get away with it by the end. And in these last moments, there is a way that they sort of like block the characters, the way they sort of hold on Stu specifically, where he is always sort of like leaning on top of Billy. He kind of rests his chin on his shoulder as he's threatening uh, Sydney with a knife. He stares a little bit too long at like the back of his neck and like his ear. He asks Billy to stab him. Yes, he literally like asks for like uh, yeah penetration. There, there's a there's some homoerotic stuff happening here that I think I don't know if it's intentional or not. I feel like it has to be. Like there's something there. Well, okay, so I think that I think that commenting on various horror tropes in the '90s was such that there were certain things that could probably be more explicit than others, and I think that queerness has always been a very big part of horror and queerness as deviance has always been a very big part of horror. So I think that the idea that these two teenage boys who are doing all these murders could be gay for each other or that one of them could be gay for the other is the kind of thing that in a like straight up, not, you know, scream metatextual horror movie, that could be the motivation. And I think that insofar as it could have been satirized without being explicit, because even at that point in time, it would have been the kind of thing I imagine that could have turned people away from the box offices for it to be a really direct reference. It is also, that is also part of the joke, in my opinion, of Mm -hmm. the two of them at the end of the ridiculous, like, of course, they're not doing all of these murders because they watch too many horror movies. And also, 
of course they're not doing all of these murders because they're gay. And like, you can see there is like a homoeroticism to their behavior. And there obviously is like penetration, like as an act from one man to another, that one of them is literally like, come on, stab me, do it. It's like, and then like, oh, you stabbed me too deep. Like I'm bleeding yeah, out. Right. Like He puts his just, hands behind his head like this too. Yeah. And you know. It's very like silly and kind of sexual. And like, that's his whole vibe throughout the entire movie. And that's yes. part of like why he's so great in that role. But I think that it's like the aspect of like, queerness is evil, gay serial killers is satirized as fully as I believe it could have been at that point in time in a movie that was going to be so mainstream. Mm-hmm. 100%. We've talked about this conceit before, you know, this stems back further than this, I'm sure. But I think the most prominent example in, in terms of like actual, you know, revelations in, in like a media cycle or one that held like the cultural conversation was in the 20s, the Leopold and Loeb trial you know these these two men who were lovers who who killed this young boy in chicago um and and remnants of that in a great 90s movie called swoon um that that details and chronicles that particular trial um we we mentioned it when we talked about uh, peter jackson's heavenly creatures as well <laughs> the motivation thing is the thing that like i find fascinating right there's there's that moment where billy tells nev I'm getting, I'm saying some of their character names. I'm saying some of their actor names. When Skeet tells we Nev, when Billy tells Sydney, uh, <laughs> when, when Skeet says, you know, like we figured it would be scarier if we didn't have motivation. Cause we think that that's cool. You know, like, you know, Hannibal Lecter didn't have a motivation, whatever. And then he immediately explains that he does indeed have a motivation that he is yeah. carrying resentment and hostility because her mother, he blames for, you know, the, the disintegration of his, family unit and and his mother leaving and when he says this there is a brief cutaway to Stu, where he looks like he is also receiving this information for the very first time and it's like a it's a combination of like sudden revelation and maybe also jealousy that he realizes oh we're doing all this because of a fucking girl and because of his mom and like not doing this because like we're we're bros you know like we're we're, uh but i i don't know I had never noticed it before. I saw it this time and I was like, I hope this is here intentionally. This is cool. I really like this. I like the way this complicates these dynamics. Um, mm-hmm. It just it just makes that any more fun. And and But to to Lindsay's point of of this sort of theme of kind of making fun of these things that are often given as reasons for why kids do things mm-hmm. or you know, what have you, like peer pressure is another one that like yeah, when you hear him say, like, I've murdered 20 people because of peer pressure, <laughs> like, you're like, no, of course you haven't, right? But yeah. I totally remember getting peer pressure talks yeah. as a child. Like, if they yeah. told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? Completely. <laughs> if they told you to kill someone's mom and frame the guy she's having an affair with, would you do it? Well, only if no, I was in love with them. Only <laughs> if I was in love with him. There you go. You have really convinced me, though, of, of uh, Williams's and Craven's. Uh, sort of like thumbing their nose um, at some of these things. And I think it makes the movie that much more interesting. Definitely. It's just so, it's like, it's like an onion, you know, it's just got so many layers and every time you watch it, except for in the inside is something sweet and not the inside of an onion, which is like not as exciting. (laughs) Sure. Like a pork bun or something. Yeah. It's like a a pork (laughs) bun. There we go. That's a good. Yeah. Scream is like a pork bun. Scream is like a pork bun. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Yeah, it does reveal a lot about itself. And, you know, some of it feels 
as we've said, some of it feels very deliberate and intentional. Some of it there as like subtext. Some of it, I think, has only revealed itself with like years on it and, yeah. and the evolution of the genre and and of society in general. But it's it's such a rich, rich text, and I'm really glad we came back to it. Yeah, I definitely think that like it's really interesting to watch now because so much of it is either still relevant or even more relevant than it was. And like, I I know that like, I think I made a throwaway comment about this earlier, but like the idea of, you know, a curfew being instituted for everyone's protection and the decisions that people make to have a party and things like that, like the ways that we react to things that are meant to be for our safety or whatever. But, um, Obviously, it is like a product of its time and the idea of like, oh, well, this is a send up of the idea that, you know, murder is queer is like, that's what I think. And that's, you know, something that I can find evidence for. But obviously, I don't know that for sure. And like, you know, other movies of that time, there are plenty of things about it that are like, they can't explore the trope of like, the black person is the first person killed in a horror movie because there are only white people in this movie in main Mm -hmm. roles. Like that kind of thing is like, Scream is missing out on an opportunity to comment on lots of horror tropes by simply still being a product of its time and still existing within those roles to an extent. Um, But that's part of why I think like, meta horror continues to be so popular because Mm. now there are movies that comment on those things more explicitly. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. Except for Cabin in the Woods that comments on nothing. (laughs) It's entertaining enough. It's fine, but it's, it's, you You don't like Cabin in the Woods. No, I think Cabin in the Woods is fine. I, I, you know, of course, like, you know, Joss is someone I, I can take or leave, you know, but uh, I I think that that movie is one that has fun with tropes, but it doesn't really say much about anything. It just like points at them and it's like, have you heard of tropes? And it's not (laughs) like, this is what tropes mean. Exactly. It's like that, uh, that like uh, super glued, like dessert tray that they bring out to you to select, you know, that's (laughs) just like the sort of plastic or plasticine versions of of everything. Oh my God. Exactly. Here are tropes. Select which ones you like. (laughs) Yes. I think it's good because Cabin in the Woods is a gateway to Scream for people who wouldn't organically happen across Scream. And I think that that's meaningful. (laughs) I would agree with that. I I will take it at that. So who are you? The question isn't who am I? The question is where am I? So where are you? Your front porch. That's the original part. Oh, yeah? Why call your bluff? Um, Before we, we conclude, Lindsay, you recently wrote a really excellent piece for bitch media that is i think the most comprehensive and and clear summary of what is happening right now with the labor negotiations with uh, iatsi the um and i'm going to get this wrong probably the international alliance of theatrical stage employees is that correct yeah awesome <laughs> their their ongoing negotiations the tentative agreement they've reached with uh the motion picture organizations that uh, they are are working with and what the future holds for them. And I thought, you know, it, it's hard right now to, to talk about movies at all without talking about this particular labor dispute and also the ramifications of these labor rights not being enacted, specifically in the tragedy with uh, Helena Hutchins' death 
uh, on the Rust set this last week. And and I think that I would like to ask you first and foremost, just like, can you explain for our listeners in as succinct a way as possible where things are at with those labor negotiations right now? For sure. So um, like you said, IATSE was in negotiations with um, AMPTP, which is uh, the trade alliance that represents a lot of production companies. And we're talking like Amazon and Apple level, like money and power that these production companies have, um, that they're literally owned by Amazon and Apple, I mean. And um, IATSE had an opportunity to renegotiate these contracts because they expired and not because, you know, things were particularly bad or anything. It was just this moment is kind of like a coincidence in that regard. But the film and TV workers who are covered by IATSE are everyone from like camera operators to art directors and they are working days that can be 16, 17, 18 hours longer than that. And then the below the line people and the non-union people like production assistants on sets are working days that are even longer than those. And all of these people are often going without food when they need it, uh, without a place to sleep, without safe turnaround to drive home and sleep and spend time with their families and be humans. So these negotiations were asking for uh, a 14-hour maximum workday. They were asking for an increase in meal penalties, which are fines that a production company has to pay when they don't feed their crew on time or at all. And those are often just incorporated into the budget rather than being a deterrent. They're just like another little bit of a cost. Um, So those are the things that IATSE was asking for. And then the negotiations started to gain some traction. And uh, that was sort of due to like coverage from a couple of places and um, an Instagram account, uh, IA stories that was sharing or giving a lot of film and TV workers an anonymous opportunity to share stuff that they had experienced working on sets and the revelation of like, these people are getting into car accidents. These people are having seizures on set. These people are like, this isn't, you know, a glamorous industry that people are having like a an incredible time working. And this is an industry that like kills and maims people and has like labor issues that feel like stone age compared to where a lot of other industries in this country are negotiating their contracts to. And also this is a huge moment for labor rights. And this is no, like, this is no like pitting one industry against another or anything like 14 hour workdays being what they were asking for is ridiculous, but even companies that have eight-hour workdays where workers are asking for better treatment, they also should be negotiating for that. I just wanted to make sure I was clear about that. But um, yeah. So IATSE reached a tentative agreement with AMPTP, and it included the increased meal penalties. It included um, the a 10-hour turnaround, a 10-hour minimum turnaround, which implies a 14-hour maximum workday. But the increased awareness around the issue and some of the other things that were missing from it, like making it easier to get into and stay on the union's insurance plan and the union's pension plan made the members of the union unhappy with the agreement. And so there's been a lot of conversation about whether they're going to vote to ratify it or not, because um, basically because they deserve better than that, because 14 hour workdays are shitty and terrible and still, you know, almost twice as long as what would be reasonably expected from anyone else. And you know, we'll fine you a little bit more for not feeding people is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the there was also some confusion about a lack of information given to members of the union when the tentative agreement was initially reached. So the information is like 
being disseminated and people are receiving information about how the ratification process works. So that vote is coming up. Yeah. I, you know, when, when this agreement was reached, one of the things that I noticed explicitly from, I think more of like the trade media, you know, Hollywood reporter variety, I mean, even like business publications, you know, I think it may have been like Bloomberg at some point as well, but there was a lot of very celebratory language being used that this agreement was finally reached. And I couldn't help but feel like it was meant to uh, sort of prematurely celebrate a gain for for workers and to also sort of frame it as any sort of complications here on out or a no vote on this or wanting to go back to that table, that those things would make be able to be colored by the media and, and by the entertainment industry as being greedy or like asking yeah. for too much. And I, I saw some some people, some laborers and, and members of IATSE like actually echoing the sentiment that it, it kind of felt like a lot of people were quick to jump on this idea that uh, they won and they got everything that they were asking for when that, that didn't really seem to be the case. Yeah, I definitely think that, I mean, not to, you know, accuse the media of manufacturing convenient narratives. Or Never. Anything. Right. No one has ever <laughs> done that. There are no books written on this. No, 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 nothing along those lines. No one, not Gail Weathers and Scream or anyone in the real world. <laughs> no one. Um, but yeah, I think that it's especially if you look at what the a lot of the coverage of the negotiations was as they were ongoing initially was like, here are the TV shows that you won't be able to watch if film and TV workers go on strike. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of like, you will be inconvenienced by this and like not so explicitly, but like these are people who are not sympathetic. And once they, you know, finally stop having their temper tantrum, life can get back to normal basically, which is like a really convenient and easy narrative to maintain when you also have like the idea that people think that all of these jobs are glamorous and fun and cool and that people are fortunate to have them, which like people are fortunate to have them in that it's a hard industry to break into in that it's an industry that's like historically extremely white, extremely moneyed and male and cis and straight. And so all of that is like, it is extremely rare for anyone who does not fit into the prevailing stereotype of the industry to be able to rise above an entry-level position. Um, But that doesn't mean that people are fortunate to be mistreated in those positions at all. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that those, those jobs don't deserve dignity regardless of who holds them. It's, it's also reflect that, that narrative is reflective of the larger conversation that's happening with supply chain issues and, and labor action in general, where it's all of these headlines about like the treats we're not getting, right? Like the shelves being empty and like the things we're missing out on, um, in in order to sort of askew our gaze away from the, the fact that people are being treated terribly, that the, the, the amount of immiseration that is happening, by people that have jobs for, or two people that have jobs is um, is just something that like hasn't the media doesn't uh, doesn't have a literacy for it. But they also intentionally, you know, um, do not talk about these things in a way that is about centering the experiences of the worker. It's all yeah. from a perspective of impact on consumption and sort of consumer behavior. Absolutely. And when you talk about it specifically as it relates to um, Helena Hutchins' death Mm. on the set of Rust, a lot of the conversation about that has been about prop guns and how safe prop guns are and whether we should have prop guns on sets. And 
it's not that I think that that conversation isn't like one that should be had, but for the headline to be like, Hollywood is going to have this drastic change where we're going to change the way that we do prop weapons is completely missing the point of what was going on in that situation, completely missing the entire point of everything. Um, It's it's a deliberate flattening (laughs) of that conversation. I think that we both, you know, were commenting today on online about this particular AP article about it and, you know, credit where it's through the Los Angeles times and their reporting around this was pretty phenomenal. They got, they got the scoop pretty quickly and maintain the headline that like a, 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 key component of the reason the accident happened in the first place is because of IATSE members walking off the set of this production and then being replaced with non-union members quickly and efficiently and those people not being prepared to like follow the same protocols and safety standards that the other crew would have. Yeah. And I think that it's like unions can be extremely like challenging and IATSE especially can be extremely challenging to get into because it's a convoluted process that can be very like class-based and isn't necessarily an indicator of somebody's skill. But it's really obvious that in this instance, like the crew was being horribly mistreated. They decided yes. that they couldn't deal with it anymore. They were threatened that they, they were going to have the police called on them. And whatever situation happened to replace them was not one where anyone's safety was taken into account because it's obvious that nobody's safety was taken into account from the very start. And I think that especially if you consider the fact that like to have been a woman who was the cinematographer on this project, Helena Hutchins would have had to be, for example, that much harder working. Like all of her friends who were discussing her described her as being like so hardworking and so dedicated to like getting the shot and all of this stuff that is incredible and meaningful and like part of what made her such a good artist. And it's also, I would imagine, and obviously I have no way of knowing part of why she decided to stay on that set and continue working on this project because it's hard to get to the point where you're the cinematographer on a, on a fucking Alec Baldwin movie when you are a woman. And yes. I know that um, I, you know, like my partner works in film and I have a lot of friends who do. And one of the first things that um, my partner said was they were like, "Uh, my worst nightmare would be to die on set. Like all of the time that you spend away from your family and all of the, the ways that it makes you not available for the rest of your life, that you're working towards something. And then for that to be the culmination of your career and of your life is, is so fucking horrible and tragic. Um, and her her family has a scholarship at the um, American Film Institute, I think AFI, mm-hmm. where she went, that they've set up in her name that I think, you know, people people should donate to. Um, and yeah, and respect her, her family and think about labor issues and film. <laughs> yeah. 100%. I think the, the thing I really appreciated about your piece in Bitch Media, um, you make it very clear in in your quotes um, and accounts from from people um, in these crafts that this sort of subsumption of yourself and like all of your emotional, mental, and physical needs um, going out the window is very much a, a a key part of the culture. It is like built into um the 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 mo of it all and that that as you said is is um probably one of the things that kept her persistent like not just her own hard workingness but that the culture itself necessitates that persistence 
Yeah. And I, I don't, you know, obviously I don't know anything about her aside from what I have learned. And she sounds like she was a fucking incredible person. And also that, that it's impossible to exist in that atmosphere and that like grinding culture of like, you are, you are worth as much as you are able to contribute to this film. And nobody will remember exactly like what that was afterwards, because we'll all be so sleep deprived that we'll just need to lie in a dark room for three days if we have them. Like, it's impossible to exist in that culture and not absorb it. And I do think that it's a a wider, a wider societal idea that we have about like hustle culture and grind culture and whatever. But I think that in film, especially because of the way that it's regulated and what's allowed, it's like pushing people to like the absolute limits of like what they can healthily do just to make something a little faster and save Apple or, you know, whoever the fuck a little bit more money. Yep. And it has that halo of being the labor of love too. Right? Yeah, that absolutely. Sort of Completely. And it's creative. Everything. And so many of these people are here because they're creative and they want to tell stories and they're doing jobs that are like manual labor or they're doing jobs that are creative, but are like sucking their souls out of them and are yes. in service of somebody else's creativity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know that like, my partner worked on um, a Beyonce music video and uh, I love, you know, this is just the, the, it's the industry. It's not Beyonce, but um, the, like the date of that video was the day that we were moving into our new apartment. And we were all like, obviously you have to, you have to do this Beyonce music video. You're going to meet Beyonce. Like, Oh my God. And it was just like a 17 hour workday that they had. And then we were moving. And when, you know, we came home, it's not like we were unpacked. Like it was just, a continued of like your your personal life is that you've moved into a new apartment and everything is a mess and your work life is that you had a 17 hour day standing and the only thing that like I took away from that for a long time was like you met Beyonce <laughs> right and that's kind yeah. of the way that the whole thing comes across to people I think yeah, yeah. completely it's just like it's it's an illiteracy right of understanding like what labor actually is and and what it entails specifically in this industry like we've we've talked about already you know we went on a a friend's podcast uh to talk about the crow uh completely coincidentally like we we had to have this thing booked forever and uh it just so happened that you know this this incident um this most recent accident that that took helena hudgens life happened um so we spent some time talking about you know losing brandon lee as well to that film and, you know, the, the narrative around it that I was reading so often was, you know, like before this accident, there was this conversation going around, like in circles, like in, in the production company and around the set and crew that like the production was haunted because so many people were getting hurt. And the only thing I could think is like, no, this isn't fucking haunted. Like, this is just evidence of of the strain of this labor. This is evidence of like people not being taken care of in this capacity on a low budget film where people are just like scrambling and grinding to try to get all the footage they need and, and flip sets. It's exploitation. Plain and simple. It's just haunted by capitalism, but haunted by by capitalism. But that is, that is like the liberal response in a nutshell, right? It's like either extraction or cancellation or like mm-hmm. I'm going to mythologize. I'm going to put some yeah. like weird, you know, moral moral binary attached to the thing. That's just yeah. I mean that's that that sums up the the liberal response to these things, I think perfectly. Yeah. And it's so much more convenient for everyone to continue enjoying the product that comes out of it and to still feel like they have done something good and they haven't like, it's like, I'm just, I don't not care about workers and I don't not care about this problem. I just 
want it to be solved neatly and in a way that doesn't inconvenience me. Yep. Completely. Completely. Uh, at risk of sounding like we're looking for a neat solution, you've already mentioned the scholarship fund that Helena Hutchins' family has opened up. Are there any other resources that people should know about that we can also link to um, to help support the ongoing efforts of this labor union and and their goals? Um, I don't have any off the top of my head, but I'd love to send you a DM later with some that you can add because I do think that that's a meaningful thing. I just don't have any like right here right now no don't worry about it we will look out for that dm and we will definitely include it in the show description uh for awesome. this episode Thank you. as well <laughs> um i think that does it for us for this episode uh the film is scream and our guest today has been Lindsay lee wallace Lindsay, thank you again so so much for joining us today and going long on this conversation Thank you so much for letting me join you. I had such a good time and I uh, look forward to hearing the edited version of this where we all sound like our smartest and best selves. I will make that happen for you. Uh, Lindsay, where can people find you on social bylines and otherwise? Uh, well, you can find me as a as a late but fervent adopter of Twitter at Lindsay L. Wallace and um, writing for Autostraddle, Bustle, um, Blood Knife, which is incredible and everyone should check out. Just another plug on that. Um, and Signal Horizon, which is another really great horror publication that is also the first place I ever wrote for. So incredible. Um, and uh, Catapult and most recently Bitch Media, where I wrote about IATSE. So I hope that list wasn't too long. That was, yeah. <laughs> now we want a comprehensive list. It should be as long as you want it to be. As long as, your, as long as your credits permit. And, uh, uh, and your publication too. Reach out to me. My email address <laughs> is my Twitter handle at Gmail. Please pay me to write. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Pay this woman to write for you all. Uh, <laughs> she's been a phenomenal guest. Lindsay Lee Wallace, thank you again so much. Um, as always, this is Hit Factory. You can follow us at Hit Factory Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe to us and support the show at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Uh, a reminder that for the month of October, we are donating all of our Patreon proceeds to the UAWD Reform Fund for John Deere Workers on Strike. $5 gets you access to all of our exclusive content as well as you know getting some money to them. Even if you don't want our episodes, we would highly recommend and encourage you to donate to that UAWD Reform Fund. Uh, the John Deere workers are already being arrested, going without health insurance, medical care, and uh, need picket line provisions. So solidarity with all workers um, will be will be giving to them and probably doing some more uh, throughout the rest of the year for IATSE and other labor efforts as well. Uh, with that, shout out as well to our capitalist overlord. Her name is Linda. And we will see all of you next time. Thanks, everyone. Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track Where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as it ships and cracks Where secrets lie in the border fires and the humming wires Yeah man, you know you're never coming back Across the square, past the bridge, past the mills, past the stacks on a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. Oh.
took you a lifetime to destroy He'll reach deep into the hole, heal your shrinking soul But there won't be a single thing that you can do He's a god, he's a man, he's a ghost, he's a guru They're whispering his name through this disappearing land But hidden in his coat is a red right hand Thank you. 